1: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on the New Books in Intellectual History, we have Dr. Graham Russell-Gow Hodges, who is the George Langdon, Jr. Professor of History in Africana and Latin American Studies at Colgate University in Hamilton, New York, and the author of several books on the history of African Americans in New Jersey. Including more recently, the Marion Thompson Wright Reader, published by Rutgers University Press in twenty twenty two. Welcome to the show, Professor.
0: Uh, thank you, uh, Hetty. Very my pleasure to be with you.
1: So I'm glad you can join me today. So today on uh, new books in intellectual history, we are going to discuss the Marion Thompson Wright Reader. It's the first book-linked project on the noted historian, Dr. Marion Thompson Wright, the first African-American woman to secure a PhD in history from a U.S. institution of higher education. The reader contains a biographical essay on Wright and also her published dissertation on the education of Negroes in New Jersey, published by Columbia University Press in 1941. First, we will discuss Dr. Hodges' biography, research and teaching interests, and some thoughts on intellectual history in general. Then we'll engage in a more in-depth discussion of the Marion Thompson Wright Reader. So Dr. Hodges, tell us uh, some more about your teaching and research interests.
0: Uh, Thank you. Uh, I've been uh, teaching at Colgate University now for over 35 years. My bread and butter is early American history up to 1877 uh, with a heavy dose of African-American history because that's been one of my uh, major fields of of interest. I also teach uh, Asian-American history because I've I've done some work in that. And of course, New York City history because that's where I started and New York City is my muse. So those are things that I teach. Uh, and over the course of the last few decades, I've uh, been fortunate enough to publish a number of books. Uh, I did a, bo- a biography, Anime Wong. I did a book on taxi cab drivers because I drove a cab five years earlier in life. Uh, I've also, my dissertation was done on New York City Cartman, who were the ancestors of the uh, cab drivers. Um, and I've also uh, done a fair amount of books on African-Americans in New York and New Jersey. Uh, beginning with my book on Monmouth County, uh, on Slavery and Freedom in Monmouth County, which was published in 1997. And I think I'll be doing a new edition of that within the next year because it's been some very interesting stuff that's come out in the last quarter century. I also do a book called Root and Branch, called uh, African Americans in New York and East Jersey, 1613 to 1863, Uh, And more recently, uh, a book called Black New Jersey. uh, And that's where I learned more about Marian Thompson Wright. And this has happened to be before in my career that uh, I decided that someone I did in a broad survey of black history was worth further examination. Uh, For example, I did uh, a biography of David Ruggles, uh, a black abolitionist and conductor of the Underground Railroad in New York City, a person who helped save Frederick Douglass, uh, and so Myron Thompson writes, uh, the reader is sort of in that line. Uh, she's somebody that people know a fair amount about, uh, at least the broad outlines of, of her career. Uh, her book is justly famous. It's cited by pretty much everybody who works on Black New Jersey or also on early Black education, um, but not that much is known about her, her life uh, and the extent of her career. And so Again, building off what I had done earlier, I decided that a uh, a fuller treatment of her was was in store, and that that's what I've done.
1: Yes, it definitely was in store. I I just um, because this is really the first book length project on her. I mean, like you say, she's cited by everyone who does African American history in New Jersey. Um, there are some journal articles, and I think a few book chapters about mm-hmm. her. Um, but no, you know, full-length um, yeah, book she, until
0: your book. If I just intercede? not uh, she is a real hero uh, to Black women intellectual historians. Uh, she's someone, you know, she is a first. Uh, she was the first Black woman to get a PhD in the discipline of history. Uh, she got at Columbia University and then it was published, as you mentioned, a year later. Um, and she's also, you know, she's a forerunner, a pioneer in a lot of ways, and so um, many people, I think yourself included, uh, look upon her as uh, a kind of a, a progenitor of your career uh, and of uh, she's an example to to, to many people. So, uh, yeah, she definitely needs a, a further examination.
1: Yeah, I think so. This is a question I want to just backtrack for a minute, because I've had this conversation with with people about how to define her as a historian, social worker, social scientist. and um, how would you define her as an intellectual? Is, is she clearly in one field or is she straddling multiple fields or is it clear for well, one or the other?
0: I think they're all true. I think she does straddle multiple careers. And she, in her teaching, uh, she was very interested in counseling. She established uh, student counseling at Howard University, where she taught for about 30 years. Uh, she was particularly interested in the average student. She said everybody pays attention to the students of excellence, but the ordinary students need some uh, attention as, uh, as well. Um, but back to your question, um, I thought about this. You know, uh, she's published in the Journal of Negro History. She has two very large articles which are printed in this new compilation that I made. Uh, that's the Journal of Negro History, so clearly Carter Woodson considered her to be a historian. I, I think of that in itself says an awful lot. Uh, she got an award for the best book review in the Journal of Negro History. Uh, so again, you know, there are people at the time who, even though she was in the education department, who regarded her clearly as an historian, and she's referred to frequently that way. Uh, when she signs on in the early 1950s to help out in the uh, the brief for the Brown, for Brown versus Board of Education, she's hired because of her talents and her skills as an historian to research uh, the integration of schools right after the Civil War. So, I mean, the people at the time saw her as an historian, and the fact that she does, she was a social worker for a while. Um, that she taught in the education department at Howard. That should not blind us to her full talents as an historian. That's how I see her. And I think, that, again, I'm just hearkening back to what Carter Woodson and other people felt about her when she was uh, during her time.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And it's because, again, where she's publishing and how she sees herself, you know, or how she defines herself as an intellectual, um, she worked under Merle Curdy, Right. You know, yes, he I think was a, a dissertation advisor, no.
0: right? Yeah. Um, Merle Curdie, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with him, uh, was uh, a white historian who taught at Columbia University and later went to the University of Wisconsin, widely known, revered, and respected. And this guy was at the really a top caliber historian. Uh, and he took uh, Marion Thompson right on as his student and worked with her and made sure that she got the dissertation done and then got it published by Columbia University Press. So uh, you're quite right to prompt me on that. Uh, here is a major American historian uh, for whom Marion Thompson was one of his uh, prime students. And uh, again, that, that just shows you how people regarded it at the time. Uh, Woodson and Curdy. that's hard to, to think of people of more uh, uh, capability and uh, stature than that.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. So let's talk about the book more directly. Uh, Tell us about the structure and um, content of the book as a whole, and then we'll get into some more specific details.
0: Sure. Um, The book is divided into really just two large sections. The the first is a 75-page biography that I've uh, made of her, uh, both of her, her career as an academic and also her personal life of which there was a great deal of sadness. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's the first part of the book. I also have an introduction which talks about her importance and some of the past work that's been done on her. Uh, then we go directly into her work, because this is really what Rutgers wanted me to do. They really want me to get a kind of a one-stop that everybody could get find, go and find very good work on Marian Thompson Wright. So uh, we have a modern uh, reprint of her book. And I think, I think they did a terrific job. I was Really, very impressed when I got the book, and how that they take a 1940s font and transferred it flawlessly into our contemporary font. It's nice, big lettering. We can. It's easy to read, uh, and so we have the fullness of her book right within this compilation. Then I also wanted to have some of her articles. And so uh, there are a couple of articles in the Journal of Negro History, uh, one on New Jersey and uh, Negroes and laws, uh, uh, and the other one, um, which is on on education again. Uh, And then following that, there's also another one on integration in New Jersey that she published uh, in the Journal of Negro Education. And this is important because she was the book review editor of the Journal of Negro Education for about 30 years. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so following that, I have a couple of her book reviews. Uh, She also did something called Notes uh, for the Journal of Negro Education. These are really interesting because they're kind of like review essays. Uh, Sometimes it'd be as long as 10 or 15 pages uh, of recent books, pamphlets, uh, articles, whatever she felt was important uh, within a particular kind of theme Uh, And she published these things in the the JNE. Uh, And to me, it was kind of amazing because she's doing this like once or twice a year. Uh, And these are really significant uh, uh, articles. And so there are a couple of those. Uh, And then finally, there is the uh, uh, encyclopedia entry that she did uh, for an early encyclopedia of American women. Uh, and she did hers on Lucy Diggs-Slow. And Slow was a very important person. She was the first dean of women at Howard University. Uh, Marion Thompson Wright was a protege of hers. Uh, and Wright, like everyone else, uh, adored Lucy Diggs-Slow, uh, supported her in her fights with Mordecai Johnson, who was the college president, and mourned her when she died early in 1937. So at the, towards the end of her career, Marion Thompson Wright and again, this speaks to her abilities as an historian. Wanted to do a biography of Slo, and so that last entry in there is this uh, two-page encyclopedia entry on Slow, which uh, remains uh, a very important document on her. Uh, it was superseded by a biography that was done about ten years ago by Carol Moody and others. Um, but it basically, you know, this is a, a very good piece on Slow. And then finally, uh, the book contains. A full chronological bibliography of everything that Marion Thompson Wright published, uh, and this mm. can include uh, very famous articles in the Journal of Negro uh, History. Uh, she did things for her uh, for her sorority. Uh, she uh, did things uh, uh, for 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 a variety of, of Quaker magazines. Uh, she did things in the New Jersey Herald. It's a, it, that's a full compilation or of, of bibliography of of her work. Uh, and so that's what's in there. There's also a lot of interesting photographs in the book of uh, uh, not only of her own work, but also of, of Howard University, where she taught for 30 years, uh, and also of her, her personal life, of her family, her parents, her sisters, her sister, uh, uh, her, uh, her uh, son and her daughter, uh, to, to give us a much fuller uh, understanding of what Marion Thompson Wright was about.
1: Yeah, so much needed, I think, and very. it's going to be very useful to scholars of not only New Jersey history, but I think the civil rights movement, Black women's intellectual history, um, I think such an um, important text. Um, give us some more insight into Wright's personal biography as you detail in your, your um, biographical essay in the book. Let's start there.
0: Okay, let's begin with her academic life. Uh, Marion Thompson writes studies at Howard University from 1927, uh, through 1928 when she gets a BA and an MA, um, and she, uh, works there under leading scholars in the education department. Uh, she left, uh, Howard for a while, um, and returned in 1940 to become an assistant professor with a book, uh, and then remained there until her death in 1962, uh, and during that time, uh, I think that she epitomizes, and she's an early example of this, uh, of uh, the, the black woman's experience in the academy. Uh, Howard University's uh, education department and its history department uh, were really the equals of, of any university department in the nation at the time. And there were some real heavy hitters in, in, in both departments. Uh, and so, you know, she was part of a, uh, an extraordinary academic environment uh, at Howard during the mid-century, um, so I mean I do detail you know her progress or as an academic from assistant professor uh, to, to full uh, the many committees that she served on uh, her work as a counselor her attendance at not only uh, a black uh, academic uh, conventions but also you know going to the American Historical Association and uh, and seeing W. E. B. Du Bois present the first panel on blacks that have been done about 30 years, this is 1940s, a very significant uh, moment. Um, And she continues to go to these kind of conferences. So as an academic, she lived the kind of full experience uh, that we all hope to enjoy. She wasn't happy with it, which is hardly surprising. Academics are known (laughs) to complain about things. Um, And she did feel slighted as a black woman uh, that she did not get some of the, the benefits that her male counterparts did but there's no question that she had a very full academic experience. Uh, that said, and this gets to the second part of what I uh, uh, disclose in this biography, you know, she had uh, a life of, of, of tension and, and, and anguish and anxiety. And that comes from uh, her early life, uh, events that continued to... Uh, uh, resonate throughout uh, the rest of her, her her life. And that is when uh, Marion Thompson Wright uh, was a teenager, uh, she was an outstanding student uh, at what was then called Newark High School, now called Behringer. And then and she's a junior, she drops out very suddenly in the middle of the year. Uh, and the reason for that is explained, explained a couple of weeks later when she gets married to a, a, a laborer named James Moss and they have their first child, um, a a daughter. And then a year later, she has another child. So uh, by the time that she's uh, 18 years old, she's married with two children uh, and does not have uh, a high school diploma. Uh, This would condemn her into a life of domesticity at best. Her mother uh, had worked as a domestic for uh, wealthy families in Montclair uh, Mm -hmm. and knew that this kind of position was, was very unsatisfying. It's Uh, But often akin to a form of slavery, Uh, certainly not much above that. Uh, And that's what Marian Thompson Wright was facing, Uh, that her life would be, at best, the same kind of drudgery that her mother and thousands of other Black women were experiencing at the time. Very limited, uh, tense, uh, having to be servile, uh, working for lesser wages, and uh, neither she or her mother wanted that for her. So she made a very dramatic decision uh, at the age of uh, 18, and that is she left her family. Uh, and uh, she moved back with her mother first and eventually returned to high school, uh, graduated in about a year and a half uh, as a distinguished student. She was they didn't have valedictorians there, but she was certainly close to the top the students at, How, uh, at uh, Newark High School, and subsequently was admitted to Howard University uh, with a scholarship. And so she's one of uh, three black students at Newark High School uh, who went on. And Newark High School at that time was really good. I mean, they, the ma- white male students routinely went to Princeton, Yale. The white women went to Wellesley, Smith, and those kind of places. Uh, mm-hmm. But Marion Thompson Wright wanted to go to Howard. The problem was this, is that Howard University at the time did not want to admit Women with children are married women, and she was both. Uh, So she disguised the fact that she had a family, uh, entered as a a single, presumably chaste woman, uh, and lived in the dormitory. And so she was always anxious that someone would uncover and disclose the truth about her. And given the mores at the time, had that occurred, she would have been expelled immediately, uh, so she's always living with this deep worry that her life back in Newark will be uncovered. Uh, during this time, her husband contacted her, asked her to return. She refused. He subsequently uh, sued for divorce and got full custody of the children. And this is very unusual because uh, the default uh, position, I think, of American judges uh, is simply to, uh, in a divorce case, is to award the children to the, wa- to the, the mother. And so uh, for Marion Thompson right to be deprived of contact with her children uh, was a, a, a deeply uh, damaging, uh, wounding experience. Uh, and as she said to, to her son in a later letter, and I use this as an epigraph in the book, it's something that really struck me hard, she said, what would you have done in that circumstances if you were in my place okay. and she had an opportunity to go on to a career to be a student to fulfill her dreams or she could stay at home with her two children and become a domestic and she had an iron rod of ambition so she chose to go to howard and had to live with this not only during the time when she was a student and there were moments when there were, she was very close to being exposed, but also after she returned to Howard as a professor, because had Mordecai Johnson, the president of the university, found out about her deception, uh, she would have been uh, fired from her job immediately. Uh, so until the time of her death, uh, she uh, first refused to let anyone know about the children, then when the truth came out, her friends, and this includes people like Theodosia Daniel, who was basically her best friend. This mm-hmm. is a woman who had been a student of hers in the 20s, later married Walter Daniel, who's a very distinguished member of the education department. Uh, and she and Wright traveled together. They went to Europe. They went to uh, 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 sorority conventions across the country together. And Theodosia Daniel knew that she would never mention these children to uh Marianne Thompson writes. So, I mean, this is somebody who, again, was her very best friend and knew not to say anything about it. And even when she began to have a rapprochement with her children, when they were adults, they also knew not to disclose their relationship with her mother. So, on the one hand, she's a very successful academic. Now, she's someone with a lot of publications. She's widely respected. She's called upon to serve on major research interests that will eventually benefit the nation and transform our society. And at the other hand, she's someone who has a deeply deep secret that she cannot disclose. And eventually that's what caused a powerful depression to wave over her. And she ended her own life at the age of, uh, of 61 uh, in 1962. So, I mean, this is a very sad, uh, aspect about her. And I explore this very fully, uh, uh, in, in the biography, that there was this this mutuality. On the one hand, there's this public success, uh, but there's this deep sadness, tragedy, uh, and powerful deception.
1: So, yeah, let's talk about that for a minute, because I know, as I said, we there's no biography of her beyond this. This is the most extensive biography of her, this section in your book, um, that exists, as as far as I'm aware, beyond, you know,
0: a journal article or two. It is, I can tell you that I've, I've looked at everything, uh, I'm sorry. I interrupted. No.
1: Uh, so I was going to say, because I've read, I've seen, you know, articles where individuals are kind of arguing around whether or not she took her own life. And that's controversial for some people, at least in more dated articles that I've read, you know, this is going back a few years. Um, so I, why do you suppose because there's a there's a news article that is published and it describes you know how she was found yes. you know by her two friends who came and yeah. found her. So why do you suppose there there was is it do you think it was a matter of not having the sources and the people that were writing these journal articles or book chapters just didn't have that information or is there something else at play here in terms of um Maybe a type of respectability politics.
0: Uh, it's it's possible uh, that that was a matter. I mean, uh, suicide is never a pleasant subject, um, and I don't think that there was any attempt at the time. Walter Daniel did a wonderful tribute to her in the journal Journal of Negro Education the following year after her death, uh, uh, and he indicated that I mean he's the guy, one of the guys that, that that found her in her car. Um, she had k- killed herself through uh, used, uh, monoxide from her car. Uh, there was no doubt about this, uh, you know, at the time. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I don't, and I don't, she didn't have any enemies in particular who would, you know, do, do her harm. I don't think there any suggestion of that. Right. Um, and she also had talked about this earlier. Um, she even talked about in a Sunday school class at Plymouth Congregational Church that she wished she would. Uh, go to sleep and never wake up again. And this was very shocking to people. Uh, She had attempted suicide once before uh, Mm. with pills and uh, was resuscitated. Uh, So, you know, she did kill herself. uh, And uh, that's the the harsh, bald fact about it. Uh, The tragedy, of course, is, you know, the deception that kept her uh, from uh, being what she really was, uh, which is trying to be a loving mother, uh, at the same time having this... uh, a uh, very demanding uh and uh successful career.
1: Yeah. I in reading some of her um letters to her son because she was a prolific letter writer and one of the questions I have too is probably about um why not have some of those letters in the in the reader but I came across one of her letters to her son and um it seems as if this is um not a letter to her but to someone else he's writing about why did she do this and then scribbled on the side where um i think he's saying something along the lines that i just don't understand why would somebody do this and it's to one of her friends you know he's kind of quizzing or asking the friend like why
0: why that's i think that's a natural question especially for someone who is as close to her as her as uh James Allen Moss was. I mean, they they had their hard times when he was growing up. Uh, she wasn't allowed to see them. Remember, you know, her husband has full custody, uh, and he and his ne- next wife didn't want her around. Uh, and I was told uh, by one of her descendants that occasionally Marion Thompson Wright would watch her children play in a be, a be in a playground from a car, and she wouldn't mm. approach them. So, I mean, there were some really tough times between her and her children. And later on, uh, James Allen Moss, you know, really, you know, he was pretty angry with her. Uh, right. and they did have their, 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 tense moments. Gradually they began to have a rapprochement and, you know, his, his children wrote her at Christmas time. Uh, she sent them presents. Uh, so there were, there were, there was contact, the, the kind of contact you would expect between a grandmother, uh, and uh, her grandchildren. Um, and certainly James Allen Moss, you know, he's is, is a very interesting character. Uh, you know, he's someone, he's raised in a, child, in a household by someone who did not finish ninth grade, um, but he became an outstanding student, uh, eventually got a PhD at Columbia University uh, in 1957, uh, clearly modeled himself after his mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was, he talked with her about uh, getting things published uh, he spoke about his ambitions with her, um, you know, but at the same time, there was still a, kind of a distance for, with her. He would refer to her as Marion rather than his mother. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so and, and after she, he she uh, committed suicide, uh, I think the most poignant comment he made is, you know, if she'd hung in there a little bit longer. She would have realized just how well things turned out and, and she didn't have to feel sad. Uh, yeah. and tragic about it. Uh, but, you know, uh, what goes on in the mind of somebody who is young like she was, I mean, she was only 60 years old, uh, and had a good career and a, a great project. I mean, the Lucy Slow biography would have been a wonderful way to, for her to, uh, uh, to continue her scholarship. And uh, she, got, she got support from uh, a newspaper in uh, Washington. They gave her 2500 uh, to mm-hmm. to pursue her work. Uh, she had sabbatical from Howard. I mean, you know, all everything was in place. Right. Um, but her personal tragedy just overcame her. And this is the kind of depression which, if untreated, and it was with her, you know, uh, will we, we'll kill someone.
1: Yeah. But nonetheless, despite it all, her contributions to the field of history, to social work, social sciences more generally, um, I think your reader speak, speaks to as well, you know, beyond mm. her biography. And, you know, I think even just thinking about it, in a patriarchal society, what women must go through to live, um, you know, an intellectual life, a life of the mind. And um, I think her story sort of speaks to those struggles a great deal.
0: I, I, but, I, I'm, I'm a white male, so it's it's presumptuous of me to speak about what black women think mm-hmm. um, or feel. But uh, my guess is, yeah, that... Uh, you know, this is someone who struggled and she's of course she was it was there's even less acceptance then uh mm-hmm. there could be an argument about that made certainly today um, but I mean she was working in a very tough environment and she did make some outstanding intellectual contributions I mean her work on the relationship of the society of friends and uh abolitionism and early education uh, thats this stuff is uh, we're still uh, working out of that you know it, it's still a very very important theme you can see this in Manisha Sinha's recent book on uh, the history of abolition, I mean, her, her stuff really stands up well. Uh, and, you know, the, her periodization of, of Black life in, uh, in New Jersey and in the North is something that's still very, very good. Uh, her book, I think, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a source which is still could be mined uh, very successfully. And, you know, to have that said about a book that's 70 years old, that, that's not bad.
1: Yeah, let's talk some more about her intellectual contributions, and specifically the contribution she makes to the history of African Americans in New Jersey. Um, you know, in her dissertations, and her uh, the other writings that you have, in um, in the reader, and um, how she comes to be on the Brown versus Board team, um, to do historical research for litigation.
0: Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, I mean, her, one of her first contributions is to uh, show the importance of the Society of Friends uh, with uh, black life in early New Jersey. Now, this is in itself is an advance because the earlier books that have been done on uh, uh, black life and slavery in New Jersey were really, really about slavery. And it was institutional. It was how slavery worked. What were the laws for it? Uh, you know, how, how did... Uh, uh, how did slave masters work? But she talks about how black people interacted with friends, with Quakers, but also with political figures. She talks about the growth of a, a, a free black class uh, during the antebellum period, about the growth of black politics. I mean, these things, you know, we're, we're, the people are just now beginning to really embrace fact that there was such a thing. And, you know, here she's doing it 70 years ago. Uh, You know, her work on the the American Revolution could be a little bit larger, I think, but it's still credible. Uh, And then she talks really very importantly about uh, the Reconstruction period uh, and the growth of of, of black choices in education, uh, the the, the time of Jim Crow. But again, again, this is something about her that anticipates later events. She was an optimist. She was somebody who thinks that, this again, during a time of Jim Crow, this is New Jersey, 1940. There are a lot of laws and customs in New Jersey that kept blacks and whites apart. There are no black scholars at places like Rutgers uh, or Princeton. you know, she is an optimist, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary, about how things are going to go. And that's how, what she de- devotes her life to. Uh, she's very much of an integrationist, uh, and all of her work lends itself towards that. And um, her son disagreed with her. Uh, he was much more pessimistic about how American life uh, would be. And he you know, grew up during the uh, 1950s, 1960s, a very active black power guy. Um, but I mean, for her, there was always that movement towards something better. And that's what she tried to glean out of history. And that's significant. She was not Pollyannish about this. She recognized that there have been, uh, uh, barriers. She recognized that there have been troubles. Uh, she recognized the damages of, 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 slavery, but she said that this is a way that black people in New Jersey are, are trying to, to, to push ahead and, and do better. Uh, and, That's the kind of scholarship I think eventually attracted that into the thoroughness of her scholarship. I mean, she she really, her footnotes, her sources, they're very full, very admirable. Um, That's the kind of thing that would attract uh, Thurgood Marshall and the rest of the team working on Brown versus Board of Education in the early 1950s, why they wanted her as a researcher, um, because they felt that she was so good uh, that she would be able to look at those uh, uh, Southern. uh, uh, reconstruction constitutions and education programs, and decide you know whether or not there had been an attempt to integrate uh, after the Civil War. Uh, ultimately, that becomes kind of a small part of the of the overall brief, although it's about five or six pages of it, and she is credited in it. But I mean, she's somebody you know who wanted to push for integration uh, to have a a greater fullness of of, of New Jersey. Uh, and and Black life in in general.
1: Yeah, talk to us a little bit uh, more about what's happening in terms of New Jersey in the 40s and the civil rights laws that are coming into place, but also the the Constitution, right? New Jersey Constitution in 47. And like, she's right in the middle of all of that. And, and, you know, as she's doing her research,
0: can you you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, sure. Uh, New Jersey was a very conservative state. It's the last of the northern states to adapt gradual emancipation. Uh, in 1804, uh, there are still enslaved people, quasi-slaves in the 1850s. My book on Mammoth County, I was amazed to see a runaway ad in 1857. I mean, this is just before the Civil War. And allegedly, there were no enslaved people at that point. They were apprentices. But here's a, pl- a master who wants uh, his enslaved person back. And, you know, this is kind of incredible. So uh, New Jersey uh, does not vote for Lincoln on either election. Uh, New Jersey does, the legislature does not support either any of the three amendments, the 13th, 14th, and uh, uh, 15th amendments. Uh, So uh, it has freedom imposed upon it. And so it's a very conservative state uh, headed by the Democratic Party, which Retains power in the state into the 20th century. And this is the old Democratic Party. Now things have been completely reversed now, and uh, black people support the Democratic Party, and uh, the Republican Party is now the, the party of, of repression, and, and, and I think a kind of a new Jim Crow. Uh, but at any rate, um, so over the course of the 20th century, uh, the black middle class, and I, I talk about a lot this in my book, Black New Jersey, uh, is Profoundly Republican. Uh, this is a party of Lincoln. This is a party where they can gain some kind of edge. Okay? Um, and they continue with that. And so you, this is the case even as late as uh, the 1960s, that there will be uh, uh, black New Jerseyans who are, are Republicans. And finally, Goldwater kind of pushes them out then, and, and Nixon's sort of the last straw. Um, but th- there's an, a milieu in which the Republican Party is, is pro-black. Uh, And so to maintain that, uh, there are uh, there's legislation put forth in the 40s to give greater civil rights, uh, particularly in education to to African-Americans. And this is the kind of thing that that uh, Marian Thompson Wright's work was really important towards uh, towards gaining. I mean, she you know, her work is uh, the source for all that kind of legislation. uh, And so she is someone People look to uh, for, for for information on this. It's this New Jersey continues to be conservative. I mean, in case you can make an argument, it always has been. Mm-hmm. Certainly now there are more black mayors, and then we uh, have a lieutenant governor who's who's black, and Cory Booker, of course, a US senator who's, as he put it a couple of days ago, the fourth popularly elected black senator in our history. Uh, you know, New Jersey has some progress, but still, of course, there's a long way to go. In the 1940s, there was much, much further to go. Uh, you know, it's, it's still kind of a Jim Crow society. But the Republican Party with black allies are chipping away at that. And so they're creating laws and commissions to support those laws, which are really in advance of anything else in the country.
1: Yeah. Uh, and she's right in the middle of it. And her work, the thing, I think, you know, you say she's an optimist, but I think she sees in an in a, in a in many respects her ideas being applied in the case in Trenton, for instance, you know that's like three years after her uh, dissertation is published in the NAACP lawyers in Trenton and then Hedgebeth Williams case like yeah. she's able to see the the application of ideas in action, which probably would have gave her that you know enhanced her optimism.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, she she again. I said she's not Pollyanna. She's uh, right. someone who has an optimism which is undergirded with a very powerful understanding and uh, uh, depth of history. So, yeah, I, that is kind of it's a good point you're making that uh, the Hedgepeth case is an example where her ideas are beginning to put into practice, and that continues through the 18, 1940s. I mean, she's the person they call on uh, whenever they want further information on this. Uh, She's the, the great expert. Um, you know, it's it's kind of remarkable. And, and, and I, I talk about this, you know, and she uh, she has an article uh, in uh, New Jersey Laws uh, published in Journal of Negro History. Uh, w- the year that she won, the JNH also published articles by John Hope Franklin and Kenneth Stamp, both mm-hmm. of whom today are regarded as giants of American history. Uh, And certainly Franklin's textbook, which he published in 1946, and she and Wright were, he and Wright were close friends. Uh, You know, this is something that's really important, but she was their peer during the 1940s. Uh, She had published important work that was recognized by people in her field. It's also, as I think you pointed out, uh, recognized by political and legal experts in New Jersey. She's called upon uh, continually, uh, as someone who provides uh, uh, in information and testimony, uh, she's a, a significant figure, and I, you know, I, I hope I brought that out successfully in my biographical introduction. You know, this is somebody you know who really had a lot to say uh, during her time.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, and um, at least in her in her professional life, she had room to be optimistic. And um see her ideas be um, applied, um, which is rare I mean for for a scholar, I, I think even now, you know, to see um, mm. that she's sought after and that she has a level of respect. Um, and I think despite it all, um she made these lasting contributions to um, African American history and the history of New Jersey. Women's history, has she been able to complete that biography of Lucy Diggs slow, I think, um, just would have been another um, area in which she was still, you know, um, making great contributions. I, I,
0: I think you're quite right. I mean, had she lived and finished that book uh, at the time, uh, it would have been a real pioneering work. And Slow, uh, for anybody in the audience who doesn't know much about her, was a very significant figure at Howard and nationally among Black women uh, and within education generally. Uh, so it would have had, that book would have made a big splash uh, had she finished it. Uh, and probably would have, if she do not the rest of her family lived fairly long. Uh, you know, they lived quite significantly longer than she did. I think there was some longevity there. So, um, you know, she would have had uh, probably other things to do as well. And that's why it's a tragedy that her personal circumstances doomed her. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's a very good point that that biography would have done a lot for her and for the rest of us.
1: So, as we come to the conclusion of our show, what is next for you in terms of writing, research,
0: yeah, well I have, I have a couple of things in the fire I have a, a big book on the um, black flight in the Americas from 1500 to 1877 which I'm pecking away at uh, but right now uh, I'm working on uh, a memoir which includes chapters on my parents um, for those of you who don't know me I'm an older father uh, my uh, my sons uh, will not be. Mature and interested in their family until I've left this world, probably. Uh, so it's important I get this down. Uh, and just apropos of what we're talking about now, I'm my father is from Mississippi. He went to Ole Miss, uh, and then subsequently in the late '30s, uh, he became he encountered Willis Weatherford, who's probably a forgotten name, but Marion Thompson Wright certainly would have known who he was. Uh, and this is a guy uh, who was a white man, a gradualist and race relations, but someone who wanted blacks and whites to work together. And he founded something called the Blue Ridge Movement in, the, uh, in, in North Carolina, and also a YMCA movement in Nashville, both of which my father took part, in which blacks and whites worked together. So when my father was at Blue Ridge one summer, uh, Weatherford brought in uh, George Washington Carver. Okay, Benjamin Mays came, okay, and they had dinner together. And this is in the South in 1938. Okay. So my father, who comes from Mississippi, which is, I think you, Ralph Rayford Logan described it well it's the nadir of race relations, probably the worst places in the world, uh, learned there as a young adult to work and to deal with African-Americans. I think this is really important. Um, and then subsequently, my father and also Weatherford's son went up to Yale Divinity School, uh, where they studied under uh, Richard Niebuhr, who was one of the leading pacifists. Uh, in the country in the beginning of World War II, uh, my father, who had a clerical uh, deferment, uh, rejected it and went in and did five years of alternate service as a conscientious objector. Uh, so I'm really interested in the kind of ideas that were percolating uh, at the time. And so I, I find that here's a guy from Mississippi who otherwise probably would have been just an ordinary Methodist minister, um, but became deeply engaged in uh, uh, in civil rights uh, and in pacifism, as a result of his exposure uh, to to black people, um, both at Blue Ridge and also at Yale, and I kind of think that it somehow influenced me in some ways, if I can be so modest. Uh, so that's what I'm working on, and it's uh, really a, a fascinating thing to to, to deal with, uh, and to also to place your parents and my own life within a historical context. So uh, I'm trying to finish it up in the next few months. I'm going to do two versions. One is a big extra illustrated version for my family, uh, and the other will be uh, something I'm going to try to publish. And I've got a couple of feelers out there, so we'll see what happens.
1: Sounds very interesting. And uh, I want to thank you for joining me on the show today.
0: My pleasure.